can you create a Christian scene where there's a lot of Christians getting stoked about something like you were in the even with the um, Christian pop punk music? Can we do that to influence the world? That's my question. Welcome back, everyone, to the Shock Absorber podcast, and it is, as always, excellent to be along <laughs> with you. If you are listening or watching, uh, we're here in a different location. And well, um, well, a different location. Hi, Tim. Hey, say hello, Andrew. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Just you and me. Yeah, today. just two of us chatting away. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're exploring the space here at Miranda Congregational Church because we're in a different location. We've been this is the third location we've filmed in. I think could be my favourite. Okay, I do like this couch setup. Yes, yeah, so I'm relaxed. enjoying the couch setup. Yeah. I've been. I think we're we're moving towards. That's what we want our regular way of filming to be. Is yeah, okay. A bit more relaxed. Yeah. You can look into your eyes more easily <laughs> rather than across the table. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been lovely. How have you been? You've. Um, you haven't been on the podcast for a while. Yeah, it's been a few weeks. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, I'm sure you have it? lots to tell us. Oh, well, more than, uh, what have I been doing? <laughs> there was, uh, was sick one week, I think. Then we yes. had uh, Square One Camp, and yes. which we can talk about a little bit. And then last week, uh, well, I just we were running a bit late as a staff team, and so I had to get back to our other campus to run some kids' ministry mm. while you and Stu kicked mm. on and... It's a very nice way to say you don't want to be on the podcast anymore. Well, I'm, I'm uh, glad you invited me back, you know. Uh, in Stu's absence, it was, you know, scratching through the list and asked everyone else and finally came and said, That's oh, I guess true. we'll have to ask you again. That's not true. <laughs> I like having you on the podcast. It's really good. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> I hope everyone else does too. If you don't, too bad. <laughs> too bad. Because <laughs> I like having Tim on. Um, yeah, tell us about Square One Camp. Because you, you've, been, you've been on Square Camp. Square, oh, gosh. Square One Camp recently. Yeah. What, have, what was it like? What is it? Yeah, so it's a camp uh, for churches to bring along their years three to six kids. Uh, we, as a church, it kind of lines up better for us ministry-wise to only take year four to year six, but it just kind of works uh, with the other um, programs that we have. And, yeah, you go away for a weekend. It's just down at uh, YouthWorks Campsites, which if anyone's listening from further away than Sydney, it, there's just some lovely outdoor campsites on a river. Um, in the Royal National Park. In the Royal National Park, yeah. So cabin set up and we just do typical kind of weekend churchy kid camp type things. There's talks, there's activities, uh, there's trying to get kids to sleep late at night. <laughs> um, yeah, there's all sorts of fun stuff. So, my, yeah. My son went for the first time. He did, yeah. yeah and it sounds like he, I think he had a really good time. I think so. Yeah. And uh, it was on Titus, is that correct? Titus chapter 2? Yeah, main, so like it was on focus, just on one little short little paragraph of four verses yeah. and Titus chapter 2. Uh, and the, our speaker was a guy called Ben, ben Pakula, sorry, mm. so clearly. Uh, and Ben is an assistant minister at a church down in southwest Sydney, but he's also a man of many talents, and one of his talents is an amazing musician. Uh, and so he has written a whole lot of songs, kids' songs, but he's also a massive metalhead. So <laughs> he, I don't know of any other Christian children's metal music other than Ben Bakula. There might be others out there, but yeah, so he's just, he's an amazing musician. He plays excellent music that I would just choose to listen to in the car, uh, but it's actually, you know, geared towards kids and teaching them truths about Jesus and 
Um, yeah, so he did our talks for us and it was based, so he, he used that passage. He's written a song about that, so he taught us a song over the weekend and then used each of the sentences in that little paragraph uh, to riff on a talk, mm. which is great. Well, he's, he seems to be very, very talented man. I uh, listened to that song. Is it, that's why we say no. Is that what the song's called? I think that's what. That it's sounds called. about right. Yeah, yeah. You can find him on like Spotify or anything like that. But um, the uh, I was I really enjoy that metal song that he was that you're talking about. Mm. It was really, really cool. So say no to sin. Is say no to sin. Thank you. Uh, since, song? If you if you do get a chance, check out Ben's work because I think it's very impressive mm. how to. Create work, create music like that, but also had a very important message for for kids as yeah. well. I think it's outstanding. Congratulations yeah. to him because he's got some real talents. Oh yeah, it's it. excellent. Yeah, yeah. And so the idea was the, the passage in Titus, uh, Titus two, he talks about the the grace of God that brings salvation uh, has appeared to everyone. Uh, it teaches us to seek the right way, um, and while we wait for Christ to come, is his song version of it uh, but essentially it's you know grace saves us but it does more than that and he kind of cheekily at the end of the first talk says but is you know salvation is that all that grace does oh. um, and then uses the rest of that passage in Titus 2 to say well actually no it does more than that and one of the more that it does is actually it uh, teaches us and it helps us and it um, we live by grace now it's not just salvation and you know, as Stu's talked before about the the bus ticket idea of salvation, like, you know, I've, I've prayed the prayer, great, now I've got my bus ticket into heaven, I can do yeah. whatever I want now. Yep. And then I know when I die, I can pull out my bus ticket and say, oh, yeah, I prayed that prayer once, here I am, I'm in heaven. And uh, this verse is a great one to go to and say, well, actually, no, it's grace not only saves us, uh, but also the joy beyond that is it actually teaches us to say no to sin, which is where his chorus comes from, mm-hmm. and to say yes to godliness and righteousness. And so it's the day by day, week by week, uh, that we live by grace now. So it's, yes, saved by grace, and that's essential, but we also live by grace. And, yeah, so it was a really, really powerful thing, and particularly with the kids. We are just helping them in the talks, and then we had small groups afterwards, and then throughout the weekend where we are just helping them think through what does it actually look like to for God's grace to... Um, be teaching us moment by moment to live God's way. So, mm. yeah, it was great. Highlight from Square One Camp, like a conversation or something that happened? Yeah. Um, I mean, activity highlight for the kids is always the water slide. There's a big yeah, water slide there on camp. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So they all really, really love that. <laughs> um, and even though it was a bit cold and wet the weekend we went, mm. that was a, a huge highlight for them. <laughs> Probably the highlight for me, There's there was a talk about midway through camp, and this is a sort of a, a classic Christian camp move where – yeah, you know, somewhere in the middle of the talk, you give the the gospel outline and the call for a sort of some sort of commitment. And being a kids' camp, he said, "Yeah, there there might be three responses to the gospel. It might be that uh, you choose you're choosing to follow Jesus, uh, you're continuing to follow Jesus, or you're still not sure about Jesus." And Ben said really clearly from the front that all three are appropriate, are good options if that's where you truly are. Like, you know, talk about where you're at. And then in the small groups, uh, me and the other leader, Josh, we split up the kids and I took some of the kids aside, particularly some of the year sixes, which you know, are moving out of kids' ministry into youth ministry. And one of the things we went through was just, you know, what did you guys tick on that page? There was a, you know, which three did you want to talk about it? 
And all of them across just said, uh, yeah, like we ticked the, we want to continue to follow Jesus. This wow. is where we are. We, we know we have been uh, and we're choosing to continue to. And that was really lovely to have them articulate. And they all articulated in different ways. They all reflected where they were on their journey. But it was really exciting. I had one boy say, uh, well, I kind of did a big tick for the first one. Like, I want to choose to follow Jesus. But then I kind of did a half tick for the second one because <laughs> I guess I already am. And so I'm continuing to follow Jesus. Yeah. And yeah, it was just really lovely. But yeah, that was really, really great. And particularly for these year six boys, because I'm the, the children's minister. And so they're leaving children's ministry. They're moving into youth ministry. And being an all-age, all-stage church, like I'll have a lot more interaction with them than, um, you know, it might be the case in other churches that are, have strict homogeneous groupings. So I'll still see them around all the time. I'll have heaps of relationship with them, but there is a little bit of that loss of uh, influence, you know, that I will have over these boys now. So it's yeah. it's lovely to, as they sort of move out of my sphere and, and the ministries that I help coordinate into the ministries that, you know, Stu and Braden and Ethan help coordinate, Michael Greaves and others who are running that youth ministry. It's really nice to see where they're at at that point in their life and knowing that, you know, that sets them up well for adolescence. Um, and like any you know, kid that's grown up in a Christian household, um, and most of these guys have, one uh, is from a non-Christian household, um, they're, you know, they're entering into adolescence with an understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, and they'll wrestle with that for you know, the next six, eight, ten years as they go through adolescence and young adulthood, and my prayer for them is they continue in that uh, and continue to choose to follow Jesus, and yeah. you know, it's really exciting. But yeah, it was just a real great joy for me to have that moment with them and it's special to know that you're a part of that yeah whether yeah, it's yeah. a huge a big impact or not it's like you've yeah yeah you've yeah got, you've yeah. just helped them know jesus a little bit better that's right yeah yeah and uh, as always in partnership with parents and yeah. um i've gotten to speak to most of those parents now and talk to them about you know the what their boys said um that's cool which was really lovely because because yeah again it's not it's not continue me. that conversation yeah, yeah. Their primary spiritual influence is always the household. Yes. Um, and so it's great for the household to, you know, I'm, it's not, you know, thank you for, you know, I'll take them for discipleship now. You can just, you know, do your parent thing, but I'll do the discipleship mm-hmm. thing. It's no, 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 no. It's always in relationship and in partnership. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's really important for me to then pass that backwards to them. Like, here's a moment yeah. that I had with your child, you know, continue to encourage them in that. Yeah, that must be cool. Is that like one of the best things about working in children's ministry those kind of experiences oh absolutely yeah 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 i mean i i'm a passionate children's minister because i believe that children uh, can and do have faith yep. um from very young and so it's it's lovely to be able to see that worked out in age appropriate ways um and for them to see to wrestle with that to think about it and obviously you know developmentally you know children change a lot from you know between zero and 12 yeah. um there's there's massive spectrum of what they understand faith to be who they understand jesus to be and you know there's there's lots about um child development which you know it's people smarter than me have talked about and written about but uh, i think that the most encouraging thing for me is it's it, you don't have to wait until you can articulate faith in a particular way to actually be a christian um, all the way through the faith that you know a two-year-old has and expresses uh, can still be genuine faith mm. um, and you know same for the five-year-old the 10-year-old the 12-year-old the 15-year-old etc and so one of the great joys for me is yeah to see them articulate faith in age-appropriate ways um, knowing that it has to develop 
you know, as we develop. You know, if, if you have a 30-year-old who's stuck in a 10-year-old's expression of faith, well, then something has been stunted. You know, they, they haven't developed appropriately. Right. Um, just like, you know, if you had a 30-year-old that had a, you know, 10-year-old's muscular development, you know, you go, oh, something's gone wrong there. Like, you know, so spiritual development is different but similar. You, know, you don't want them to be only ever express faith as a 12-year-old faith. Um, you want them to grow in depth and knowledge of understanding and relationship and love and commitment and obedience to Jesus. But the the appropriate expression at the age appropriate space um, is exactly what I'm looking for, and it's it's awesome when it happens. Mm. And have you recovered yet? <laughs> oh yeah, I wasn't too tired. It was just a weekend. It's That's fine. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Did you have many late nights? It wasn't too late actually. Yeah. This year um, we had the. There were three boys' cabins. Previous years, we've had all of our Soul Revival boys in a hall, um, <laughs> which is like, you know, 15, uh, 12 to 15 boys in a hall. And it's, it's nuts and it's chaos and they love it. And it's a massive thing for them, uh, hugely bonding for them. Uh, and it means that they're, trying, they're finally going to sleep about 1 a.m. after I've just had mm. to really crack it at them and just go, no, seriously, go to sleep. Uh, this time we split them up. They still had cabin moments. They were with a few of their friends. I tried to make sure friendships were together. Yep. Um, but, yeah, they were out of it by 10.30, 11 o'clock. So yeah, I can even see, at all. just talking about my son's experience, I can see that he has, with the three boys that he was in his cabin with, he has more of a, like a much stronger relationship with them because yeah. it's just one weekend, so... Yeah, that's yeah. really special. And that's the highlight of the camping experience. Like we, uh, at YouthWorks, we often talk about them as like mountaintop moments. They're kind of high points in your discipleship journey oh, yeah, okay. because they, the ability to go deep in relationship uh, over that time because you're spending 36 hours together. Mm. Uh, you see all the good and the bad in people during that long. Yeah. Uh, and so it's really great to be able to share that with them. And one of the reasons that, my youth works team helps run Square One camps. Is there's a most churches in the Sydney diocese, and, and it's not just Anglicans who are there either. Um, but most churches are not of a size where they would run their own kids camp. And so, you know, there's a lot of churches that are small to medium. You might have five, ten, twenty kids in your kids ministry. You're not going to take fifteen kids away. Um, by yourself like it would be difficult to and even less if you got five you got five primary school kids that's not really going to take away on a camp but you get 20 churches that all have five to 15 kids mm. and you take them all away together well now you've got a party um and it's it's well, really great there's almost four, 400 there were 400 people on site i think it was about 300 kids and okay. 100 leaders okay um across there because every church comes with their own leaders and that's the other really important part of the strategy of square one is that uh, YouthWorks is not running a camp uh, for you so you don't have to engage in ministry. It's, yes. it's facilitating a space where you can minister with your kids. So yeah. we run the overheads, we run the speaker, we do all the organising of the administration and the facilitating of uh, things that you will do. But a massively key part of it is you are coming with your kids that you are in weekly discipleship with um, and so you're in the build-up towards it, you're in the follow-up afterwards, you're doing that in partnership with parents. And so, yeah, there's sort of, you go back a generation or so, and you had things like Camp Howard and these other sort of uh, summer-type camps where um, the organisers would just pull leaders from any and everywhere to just try and get as many safe adults as possible to come on camp. 
and then kids would just come from any and everywhere and there'd be no existing relationship between the adults on camp and the kids on camp. you just come away for a week. And that uh, has benefit and, you know, I know a number of people who told me they've become Christians on Camp Howards and those kinds of things um, and it was deeply formative for them. So those things can have spiritual benefit but we've realised that actually if we can facilitate a space where the existing relationships between leaders and or parents and the kids that they bring, um, if you have that pre-existing before you come to camp and it continues on after camp, that's even more powerful because it's not just a once-off uh, connection. Mm. It's uh, we're just facilitating a, a mountaintop moment for existing relationships. Yes, I must say I'm a little bit jealous that I didn't get to go on such camps because I grew up in a non-Christian house. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, next year come as the leader, and you'll be you'll be loving it. Sorry, come as the leader next year. Then you'll be oh yeah, it. here we go. We've got it on record because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got it on record of you forcing me to do it. But that's really lovely. It's cool that you get to do that at least once a year, and yeah, and really deepen those relationships that you are so. I know he at, like working as children's pastor here at church is something that's really important to you, and mm. I, and I, it's cool that you get to further that even more yeah. something like that yep yeah that's really cool well uh we had a conversation this is kind of be, be our cultural artifact or artifacts <laughs> we were having a conversation um over lunch during the, the start um, the staff were having lunch and we were talking about um different eras of music and what that kind of represented in culture and I don't know where this is going to take us, but we thought we may as well talk I about it. And I took a phone right. call halfway through their conversation, so you'll have yeah. to fill me in on a few well, things. Well, I kind of started it because I was. it was something that we talked about quite a while ago on the Shock Absorber about, we talked about Woodstock 99. And one of the big bands that were there and when one of the, some of the really not great stuff went down was when Limp Biscuit were on stage. And I was tr- been trying to think about, the conversation started talking about grunge music and what that represented um, Jai, one of our pastors, was talking about he loved grunge music and it really felt like it really struck a chord with him in terms of what he was experiencing in his life, in his teenage life and or later teenage life. And so that was the all the music that came out of Seattle uh, and represented a lot of things that teenagers were feeling at the time of not feeling heard, uh, feeling like there was a lot of greed in the 80s and things like that. And that's why they dressed in flannelettes and ripped jeans and T-shirts and those kind of things, but had long hair. And then I was trying to think about, well, what was that moment for me? And that's why I brought up Woodstock 99 was because there was a time when I listened to a song by Limp Bizkit called Break Stuff. I borrowed the album from one of my friends. I think this was in, it was either in at the end of year eight or in early year nine. And I borrowed the album and... I just heard this song called Break Stuff and um, I remember I was doing my homework and I could not stop listening to it. I literally mm. put it on repeat and I was trying to think about well, what did that song have in it for me that felt like was expressing how I felt. And But uh, the thing is there was a lot of anger in that kind of music because I've started to understand, look at another band of that similar time, Slipknot, mm. and that a lot of that is anger and you don't understand me. So I think that's where it came from. I didn't think I was angry, but I was like, I don't understand what's going on in this particular stage of my life and this music is speaking to me for a certain way. I mean, Olympus could have a song called My Generation where it's like you, um, 
it has swear words in it, so I'll try not to say that. <laughs> but you don't, you don't. He's basically saying you don't care about me, and I won't care about to you until you care about me. And so I'm wondering, and this may lead to lots of other discussions. What we're talking about, yeah. but I was kind of thinking: is there a particular song that kind of had a similar impact for you, or a particular artist? And then we can kind of talk about why do you think that had such an impact on you? Anything, any one that springs to mind like that? Yeah, I mean, I've talked before about a lot of the music that really resonated with me or that I was spending a lot of time listening to in the sort of mid to late 90s when I was in sort of high school was the, the Christian punk metal hardcore yep. scene. Uh, and a lot of that came from there was one particular radio, sorry, one particular label called Tooth and Nail Records. Oh yeah, Stu mentioned it last week, I think. Oh right, yeah. Oh yes, he did. He talked mm. about um, yeah, he mentioned Ninety Pound Wuss. Uh, <laughs> that was one of their bands. They're a great band. Um, and Brandon Ebel, the guy who started that, uh, and I think still runs it. It's been through a number of iterations, but uh, he was a Christian guy that was a bit frustrated at the. Um, squeaky clean Christian pop rock of the 80s and early 90s. Interesting. And he he didn't like the music. He liked kind of, you know, punk and a bit of grunge and that kind of harder edge stuff and wanted to start a label where bands that were Christian or Christian adjacent could express their music. Um, and so that was where he's, he started. So a lot of the bands, there were... Uh, so early bands, Wish for Eden, um, MXPX were on there, Goaty Hook, Value Pack, um, these kind of bands, Starfly 59, like there's tons of them. And that uh, that was the world that I – it was a couple of years old by the time I kind of got to it. Um, and But that was – I sort of grew up with that world and it started to grow in influences. A couple of those bands that were on that label got huge. So MXPX was one that sort of started as a little – Seattle um, punk band uh, got onto Tooth and Nail and they just kind of went massive and, and then they became one of the leaders in pop punk along with you know Blink-182 and Green Day and those kind of um, the offspring was a little bit older again half generation above but yeah you had those kind of bands and then by the time you get to the early 2000s you've got um, the sort of new metal post-hardcore, screamo-type stuff and, <laughs> you know, bands like um, Under Oath and Norma Jean both came out of that Christian scene but became leaders. Like, they were headlining Warp Tour and yep. all these kind of big things. Um, so that was that was my kind of world. And when it comes to things that particularly resonated, um, I think one of the things I really liked about that world was, I mean, there were a number of bands like MXPX who weren't really Christian uh, per se. Like they they probably said they believed in God, but um, most of the band doesn't now and they never were particularly explicit in Christian lyrics or anything like that. But there was a number of bands around across all the genres uh, that were very explicitly Christian. So uh, Scar was massive, you know, kind of Mighty Mighty Boss Tones kind of feel. Yeah. But... Um, there were three kind of big Christian ska bands at the time. So the OC Supertones were one, Five Iron Frenzy, and then uh, sort of a little bit behind those guys was another group called The Insiders. Um, and those three were just 
explicitly Christian, positively Christian in different ways. Uh, and so that was really, really great. In, in the hardcore scene, there was this whole movement called Spirit-Filled Hardcore. Um, and that was just explicitly Christian, Christ-centred rage uh, you know, music. Um, <laughs> and then metal bands kind of you know, blended across there as well. And I think what I really liked about those was it gave me an opportunity to express youthfulness, like youth culture, uh, but also be really stoked to be a Christian and that Christianity was still where the action was, which is something else we might come back to. This is kind of the end of your conversation with Stu last week, um, was that Christianity and, and the church and that was – it had energy to it. It had there was excitement behind it. There was um, you could be confidently Christian in a really uh, fun kind of way, and I think there. So they were the bands that really resonated with me. Uh, that you had this, and I think built my sense of um, being Christian is awesome. Like not always pleasant, like not always fun. Like there are sad times, there's hard times, and particularly Five Iron Frenzy go a bit more into that reflective and they were a bit critical of american christianity more and so they were a bit more controversial in some of their lyrics right. uh but you know you know the supertones were just you know reformed evangelical guys who just had heaps of fun and they would jump up on stage in you know suits and ties and just go hard um they i've seen them play a couple of times came to australia twice and it's just the most fun i've ever had at a live event mm. uh just dancing around with them and just so positively and joyfully Christian uh, in a way with also excellent music, like you weren't compromising on style or anything. Um, so I think those are the kind of things that really resonated with me. So, which meant that when I heard things like Limp Bizkit and Slipknot and other bands, firstly, I, I didn't really have the capacity to pick up any of those bands because there was so much happening in the Christian scene, mm. I just didn't have enough money to spread around. And this was, <laughs> yeah, when you had to actually buy a CD to listen to it, yeah. you didn't have... It was like 25 bucks or something. Yeah, it? it was like if you wanted to get into an album, yeah, it's 25 bucks. Yeah, yeah that's or right. Or, some, or your mate's 25 bucks because he's bought yeah. it and you've <laughs> okay, shared yeah. it around. Uh, and so there was a limited capacity that we had to actually engage in different genres. So you kind of had to pick your lane uh, and stick with it. Otherwise, you couldn't keep up with that genre or that those groups of bands and branch out because um, you just didn't have, you know, the, the finances to keep up with too many <laughs> artists. Um, and this uh, subgroup, like, wasn't on the radio, obviously. So you're not going to turn to Triple M or Triple J and hear Christian punk bands. So that was another limiting factor was for me and my mates who were really heavily into that scene, it was about, you know, sample discs and um you know passing around things at school and yeah that that was kind of the the world that we were in which also feels a little bit subversive and you know there's something special about being into uh a genre that not many people know about like a bit underground yeah it Mm. felt really underground Mm. because these were bands that no one else had really heard of uh they're not on the radio not even on the underground stations like triple j and fbi and those kinds of things uh, and they almost never come to Australia, so it's not like you can go to the gigs and watch them. So it, from the distance that we are, 
it, it was very underground. It felt very special that we were into this, you know, secret club kind of thing, which, you know, for teenagers is really powerful mm. to have those little subcultures that you feel like you're strongly part of mm. as well. Well, it, speaking about how I developed my music taste, I later on got into more classic rock at the end of high school. And the trigger for that was um, there's a band called The Darkness, which is one of the, uh, in my opinion, one of the last great like proper rock bands. Right. And But then I learned about their influences, which were ACDC and Led Zeppelin. And with Led Zeppelin, one of the things that they became so popular was they were completely underground because they barely released a single on the radio. Right, yeah. It was, you buy our album, like our full album, mm. obviously it was um, on vinyl at the time, but people were basically, have you got the Led, Led Zeppelin album yet? Because you couldn't hear it on the radio, but you could find the, have you got the full album? And they were like, we're so confident in our music and our you know artistic endeavors that you can you can only get it on the album that's the only way to consume it which is funny i think the reason that we were talking about it too as a staff team was um uh i read an article recently uh was it was someone on someone's substack uh his name is adam mastro mastro and Inini. hopefully i haven't butchered that too bad i apologize adam um and he wrote an article called Pop culture has become an oligopoly. Right. And first of all, we had to check what an oligopoly was. <laughs> yeah. Well, which was, it's an industry that is dominated by a few big players. Yeah. So it's not a monopoly where you've just got one big player. Yeah. So you've got a few, but they're still yeah. squeezing out. I would say maybe the tech industry is, to a degree, an oligopoly because you've just got, you know, Apple, Amazon, those kind of things. But maybe not. But I was trying to think of what's, a, what's an absolute monopoly? Can you think of anything? I, want, I was wondering, Qantas is kind of almost there in australia now yeah maybe but this virgin australia still exists in its yeah yeah lesser form yeah i was trying to think what else is a monopoly yeah i don't know if we have absolute monopolies i mean you've got uh like the groceries for australia woolies Woolies and coles and and then you've got aldi which is kind of chasing from behind but and iga but they're independent yeah so maybe that is an oligopoly then yeah but i mean iga i don't know if that would count they're not going to compete yeah yeah anyway but uh, the reason it was, we were talking about it was that it was a little, it was a nice, f- friendly debate about whether this was true or not, because part of it is true that you only have the biggest artists are individuals. So, for example, Ed Sheeran, or who does all of his music himself and uses a guitar and loops and everything when he plays. Then you've got Taylor Swift, for example, Beyonce. Mm. All the biggest players in music are you know, Kanye West to a certain degree, maybe not so much anymore. Even Kendrick Lamar, like the whole thing is just individuals. It's all individuals now. It's not big rock bands. Yeah, interesting. So the idea also of, you know, four or five people getting together and just learning how to play in a garage mm. is not really a thing anymore. Um, and now I think you even mentioned that Dave Grohl says there's a lot to do with that with Dave Grohl the drummer of Nirvana and the lead singer of the Foo Fighters yeah yeah I read his uh, memoirs memoirs stories I can't remember what it's called, it's called the storyteller I think I uh, read his book recently and that was one of his laments is hmm. with the uh, overconsumption of digital media uh, and the ability to not ever be bored that where young people are not grabbing a musical instrument and just mucking around and trying to figure out how to play and 
he's lamenting. He says, oh, I wonder how much great music we're missing out on because yeah, young people are not learning, not getting their friends. Um, when you can be uh, sedated by you know, your screen in your hand 24-7, yep. uh, you're never going to get to a point where you're bored enough to ring up your friend and say, hey, do you want to – you kind of hit – drum things i kind of strum <laughs> guitar things let's just put it together in my parents garage just doesn't happen anymore because we're so sedated by our screens that um it's uh, i can't remember his name now but the there was a book written in the 80s called amusing ourselves to death uh, is it neil postman i think um so and this is what he kind of highlights and he's just talking about the tv world yes uh, and it's, I mean, completely unimaginable to him. And he passed away before the internet world really kicked off. Uh, but, yeah, if TVs were amusing ourselves to death, then we, we're just completely sedated by our screens. Uh, and the lack of boredom leads to lack of creativity. And so this is part of Dave Grohl's lament and, and this idea that, well, where are all these new bands coming from? Like, where are they? Yeah. Um, but it's also, on the other hand, You've got an overabundance of places you can, like artists you can listen to, and there's a there's a flattening out as well of pop culture mm, thanks so, to the internet. I think. Yeah, that's, that's cool. right. Yeah, so you go to Spotify, and it's just as easy to find some band from down the road that listened to, yeah, that that released a track, as it is to find Taylor Swift. Uh, and there'll be some algorithms at play that help push some artists and not others. But the democracy of Spotify, I mean, it's great for the band down the road that's released a single because everyone can find it. Whereas before, you had a limitation of access. You weren't able to find these bands. Um, and that was part of the underground scene that me and my friends who were really into Tooth & Nail had, was it was actually really hard to get those albums. Right. Um, yeah, you had to... Uh, they, they most of the time would never end up in... Sanity or Virgin Music or Grace Brothers yeah, or all the just, places we were buying CDs. Yeah, I just remember that. In the late 90s. CDs, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You yeah. go through and you, fl you flick through the racks of all yeah. the CDs. Yeah. But all the bands we were into would never appear there. Maybe they might have one MXPX album because they were just on the cusp of being popular. Um, but, yeah, they'd never stock a Gady Hook or a Five Iron Frenzy or a you know, Showbread. And so... You had to go to – the Christian bookstore was massive. Um, and so hmm. you go there and so there was uh, one near us, Word at Sutherland, um, Koorong over in West Ride. Uh, and so, you know, I remember me and my mates, we would go for day trips in the school holidays and we'd catch the train out to West Ride with the three different changes of platforms <laughs> and whatever yeah. to get out there to go to Koorong for the day because that was the place where you could find the music that we were into. But it was really hard – to access, which added to the specialness of it, I think. Um, whereas now it's super easy to find all these bands. And I've got all these bands that I knew of a song from a sampler disc that I can now go back onto Spotify and play their entire album and go, oh, yeah, this was really good. I yeah. wish I had this 20 years ago. But yeah. again, limited access. We just didn't have it. Well, that was – and again, that's part of the discussion was the – is it actually an oligopoly or I use the word homogeneity – is it actually a case or is it just our perception is that because uh, very helpfully Ethan was saying, well, the actual the methods of discovery have changed so much because the internet, it might be a TikTok song and you hear it multiple times. You, you remember when you used to listen or I used to listen to the radio more. I don't yeah. listen to the radio anymore. 
I just listen to podcasts really, <laughs> is that you would hear the same song. This is how it came out. We talked about the bands that came after the grunge music like Creed and Nickelback and Live. Mm. Those kind of bands um, were almost leftovers from that grunge era or influenced by that grunge era but were played repeatedly on the radio. Like yeah. you just remember hearing those songs over and over again. Yeah, you listen to Triple M in the late 90s and that's just that all the time. Yeah, that's what yeah. it was like. And then, But now the method of that happening is shorter versions but like this repetitive version that's used in a ton of meme reels and TikToks and that's how we kind of discover things mm. like that. But then I was also like related it to movies as well, how there's there seems to be little creativity coming out of movie studios these days, unless it's, um, I know there's the Napoleon movie coming out soon, yep. which is a Ridley Scott film. So he's built his cachet. Yeah, he's got the kudos to he's, build yeah. something and to massive. Get a, and to garner a large budget as well. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. in this article that I was talking about that he – the writer has tracked movies in the top 20 by revenue that are prequels, sequels, spin-offs, remakes, reboots, or cinematic universe expansions. Yeah. And the increase from, let's say, the mid-1990s up until 2020 is something like, it used to be 25% of the movies and now it's up above 75% according yeah. to his data. So it feels like there's maybe two, two competing things there. That is the method of discovery is far far easier but the top level is that oligopoly uh you know just a few artists that really take the top level because it's also artists don't make as much anywhere near as much money from album sales because of streaming now yeah so now they have to tour more or have to have larger tours but the artists at the top top level are doing even bigger and bigger shows so i think the perception is that i mean i, I don't know if you've seen the clamour around Taylor Swift's latest yeah, tour is eras, yeah. gigantic. Yeah, the Eras tour. Thank yeah. you for pointing that out. But I even saw Metallica, who are a uh, re reasonably ageing band now, mm. are doing a complete stadium tour of the entire world. And that's not new, but even their stage presence is that they were, they were in a football stadium in Germany and the stage would take up the stage that they've done is in almost in the round, but they allow there's people in the middle allowed, and they actually go around the outside almost right, in a circle. Yeah, okay. But then there's like these, it's almost like an oval. There's four points because there's four members in the band that they've they basically aren't in connection with each other as much as you would be on a stage just facing the audience, yeah. which is really interesting. Yeah. So there's there's videos like people have taken on their phones of James Hetfield just basically in his own, like, getting ready for the show to start, but he's there on his own. He's not with his bandmates. He's just out on his own. So I think it's an interesting picture of, you know, almost what our culture's like of this exceptionally individualistic culture that Metallica set, but also to a gigantic audience yeah, it's as well. Uh, the last thing I've seen of that is just how music like grunge or even, uh, I think, earlier about the you know rock and roll and how that was influenced very heavily from the the rock and roll that came out of the US in the 50s that was influenced by the blues musicians in the 30s and 40s and then transferred over to the UK and then the they called the British invasion when they went back to the yep. 
UK and as I said like mentioned Led Zeppelin before they, they were a big part of that too but that yep. scene in, even in the 60s Black Sabbath Iron Maiden that's right they all came out of that scene that was created around blues music mm. in the early 60s in London and that's the interesting the, the how music that influences the world is actually comes out of particular areas where a scene was created like Seattle for example was a huge scene for grunge San Francisco and LA was a huge scene for that early metal era where Metallica came out. Yep. You've got Huntington Beach area, which is yes. massive for the pop punk. So your, your offsprings and yeah, those kind of things yeah, exactly. really come out of that Huntington, Venice Beach kind of surf culture, but also skate culture that yep. was massive for that era. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, surf and skate because that was such a big, yeah, I mean. Massive part beach. of that pop punk, 90, yeah. late 90s. Yeah, so and, and like I said, there's the, the scene in London trying to think if there's any others I can't think of off the top of my head but I suppose what my link is and my question is can you create a Christian scene <laughs> where there's a lot of Christians getting stoked about something like you were in the even with the um, Christian pop punk music can we do that to influence the world that's my question that that's the place you want to be in order to influence the world in a gospel way mm. it's like i think one of the thing that happens with these little musical subcultures is you have people who uh, genuinely love the thing that they're interested in and will sacrifice for it yep and that's when that culture catches on and you have people that are are really excited and they they have longevity and so yeah you've got it you can see the the seed of these ideas starting you know in often in um reaction against yeah. other the previous musical styles so grunge is reacting against big hair metal glam rock yep. kind of you know massive uh, stage production, massive costumes, massive like makeup, uh, hair, <laughs> all these kinds of you know large solos, all these kind of thing. And grunge comes along, and it is it's simple, it's repetitive, um, it dowers like a style in terms of rather back, yeah stripped back style. Um, so it kind of uh, it, it's in reaction to, but you and I think you know pop punk kind of is a reaction a little bit towards grunge. Like it picks up a lot of that grunge, but it also looks at that and goes, why are you so sad, you know, Gen <laughs> Xs? You know, like, yeah, let's just be silly and have fun. And I mean, very hedonistic, but, you know, the whole skate uh, surf culture is very much about like just enjoying life. And so hedonistic pleasures, but, um, you know, let's have fun with this. Let's be silly. And, um, and so you have... You know, Blink-182, where they're uh, writing dumb songs. Um, a, vid a film clip just running naked. Yeah, running naked through the streets of LA. Yeah. And it's just, it's silly. Like, it's just dumb. Um, and that was, and, you know, Punked um, and Jackass and those kind of TV shows yes. came out of this. Like, it was yeah. just, you know, frivol frivolous. Um, and, but what, I think what happens is you've got these movements that start small, they start to grow, and it's that curve of, you know, you've got the experimenters, you've got the early adopters, you've got the 
you know, early majority, late majority, you've got this little curve thing. This is quite common in trends. And uh, that is, that's kind of happening in the music scenes. So, you know, you've got grunge starting in Seattle, you've got the, um, you know, British, uh, what do you call it? British invasion coming out of London, these kind of scenes. But the ones that are authentic and, and grow energy, uh, the ones that, You've still got people sacrificing for, like it's hard going for a long time, and you get a, th- a few breakout um, artists that might get some radio play, uh, and then you kind of get this almost institutionalized version of that. Um, and so, you know, Blink One Eight Two come along and they're groundbreaking uh, in terms of style, and then every record company wants a Blink One Eight Two, and so if they can't get Blink One Eight Two they'll find someone else. They'll look for the next, who else is there? All right, we've got to find the next uh, pop punk band and everyone needs a pop punk band and every label has a pop punk band and everyone's touring pop punk bands. Some 41. Some 41, yeah. You've got all these kind of crew coming through. And, you know, so you have the same kind of, you know, even with the manufactured bands like, you know, the Spice Girls and the, you know, NSYNC and boy all bands. these, the yeah. boy bands Backstreet and the girl boys. bands. Backstreet Boys. Uh, and you know, you get one group that goes massive, and everyone's like, "Oh, we've got to create our own little manufactured version of people who can dance and you know lip sync along to the songs that we've produced for them and all that kind of stuff." So, uh, and I think the connection with the excitement about Christianity—you've got these other moments where Christianity has started small, and it requires sacrifice and hardship, and the committed people make it happen, and then you start to build and build and build, and when you get to you know, the early majority and then to the late majority of take-up of an idea is potentially when it starts to commercialise, when it starts to become popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, you know, and it takes, it takes less sacrifice to be a part of that community um, and therefore it cheapens the experience and it's also a lot easier to hang loose to. Uh, and if that continues for a couple of generations and you get people who it's really not that important uh, to them, it's it maybe part of their cultural identity, but they're not particularly wedded to it as an idea. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the challenge is how do you continue to make the eternal gospel constantly? Uh, uh, I don't know what it is. It it's it requiring sacrifice. Like bringing yeah. back to that idea that it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard, and in the hardship is its value. Which again comes back to what we said earlier about the constantly being pacified by our devices. And this was Neil Postman's idea about, you know, being amusing ourselves to death. Like when the media we consume and the life we consume doesn't require much of us, uh, we're taking away the hardship and the hardship is what actually brings us value. Yeah. Uh, and so this is what, and, and I think we've noticed this and, and there are sectors of our society who are noticing this. And this is where I think you get people like Jordan Peterson, uh, Ryan Holiday, you know, these kind of guys that are advocating virtues uh, and virtue formation, which is uh, – and they're, they're acknowledging that this will be difficult. Like yes. they're not promising an easy life. Uh, it, they're promising something that's difficult and hard and worth it. And they're also – Uh, particularly resonating with people who have had life really easy. Uh, They have been pacified. They've never had to be bored in their life. Uh, They're living in the suburbs in one of the richest, uh, most prosperous times 
in the world, in the safest locations in the world, uh, and people are feeling dead inside because of it. And you're like, oh, what, no what's value. going on? Yeah, there's no value from doing something difficult. That's right, yeah. Mm. So if you've grown up in a, in a you know, uh, low middle class or upward family in a suburb in a western city, uh, you've probably had very little struggle. Now, obviously, there's massive class distinction there. Um, there's going to be other distinctions, race distinctions, etc. But generally speaking, there are a lot of people who have never quite had that hardship and never had to work through hard things to get to the other side, to get to creativity, to get to virtue, to get to whatever it is. And I think there, there's a growing number of people and you know, interesting, I don't know what all the reasons are, but there's particularly uh, young adult males who are resonating with this idea and going, yeah, I, I want someone to push me. Um, I want someone want, to challenge me. And want the discipline. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And, you know, 15 years ago, we had this with Mark Driscoll. This was the Mark Driscoll phenomenon. Yeah. Was, you know, he came up and told um, young adult men uh, to... Put your pants on. Put your, put your pants on, <laughs> tuck, your, tuck your sheets in, make your bed and, and move out of your mum's basement. Mm. You know, grow up and get a life. Um, now he had a particular you know, Christian version of that. Jordan Peterson's got a quite you know, relatively secularized version of that. Ryan Holiday's got the Stoic philosophy version of that. Um, but it's the same message, which is basically you know take responsibility, and responsibility is difficult. Responsibility is hard, yeah. uh, and I think that's why it kind of resonates. Now, how do we do that without just mimicking culture, but actually do it genuinely from the gospel? And I think there's a lot about what it means to live a Christian life. Uh, which, uh, because it is true, will resonate if we can communicate the truth of that gospel in a way that will resonate with that culture. Um, and so that people can see, uh, see the relevance for that heartache that they have uh, to, of you know, amusing themselves to death. They, they realise that they're lackadaisical. They realise that they, uh, they're not... Uh, achieving you know and so you can say yeah yeah, yeah. we let's reframe those with a gospel-centered mind and say well, actually what jesus calls us to is a lifelong commitment to take up your cross and follow him and that in itself like when you start to tease that out you realize that that has some of these elements that people are desperately striving for uh and i think it's it's sad that people are finding that in jordan peterson and not in the church um, because it should be the church that should be... Because that almost means they can't find it in the church. That's right, yeah. And maybe it's because they're disconnected from the church. And I, you know, there's all these anecdotal stories about people who are finding the church because of Jordan Peterson, because he's yeah. kind of weirdly mystic, religious in some way. Um, and that's, yeah, great. That's, that's awesome. Um, but, yeah, to, to challenge people with the, the, the person of Jesus Christ, the historical, unique person of Jesus Christ... Um, and what it means to be a disciple of him uh, has so much to say to where the world is right now. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, I, we, we need to work out as a church how to communicate that in a way that people will hear and will resonate to. And I'm not just talking about, you know, packaging Jesus so that he's attractive. It's like, no, no, the, the truth of Jesus resonates deeply with the human spirit because it's true and it's good and it's beautiful. Mm. But because, you know, culture changes and helping that good, true and beautiful message in the 1970s is different to the 2020s. Uh, and so it's how do you keep that message, the, the true message, the same, but help tease out 
um, the particular resonances that it has with today's culture. And I have no idea how we got to hear from Beyonce. That's <laughs> <laughs> all right. I mean, uh, that, that's, oh, we're talking about music scenes and how yeah. do we make that attract? Like, how, can that be something that, you know, Christians can do as well, create a Christian scene, yeah. and invite others into it, but also be impacting the world as well. But yep. I mean, it's interesting that you, in a lot of things that you said there, I'm wondering if that, you know, I use that kind of thing of listening to Limp Biscuit, that maybe that's what I was looking for, was like I need, I, this, everything seems too easy. Well, yes, I think that's what they tap into. They tap into a dissatisfaction, yeah. the youth culture dissatisfaction and anger at the world. And, you know, the, the, um, again, that half generation earlier, yeah, you go back five years from Limp Bizkit and you've got um, Blink-102 and The Offspring raging against suburban identities um, yeah. because they're growing up in, in America's suburbia and they hate it. Um, you know, Green Day Green as Day. well. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're realising that this, this promised utopia of, you know, beautiful house, picket fence, 2.5 kids in the backyard in suburbia. It's supposed to be beautiful and yet their parents are still depressed, divorced, suicidal. Uh, they're high on drugs. They, you know, their mates are committing suicide. You've got all this gun violence that's become really apparent from um, Columbine, particularly onwards through right. the late 90s. And it's like, hold on a sec, we live in a really wealthy part of the world with really high standards of living. Mm. Um, Which you're told is the mean, the, the end. We're like, told, yeah, yeah. This, this was our baby boomer parents' hopes for us. Yes. That we would live in this environment and this environment is killing us. What's gone wrong? And so, yeah, you start to get that with the, a little bit of the punk scene and it, I think it comes to a head particularly in that with the, yeah, the, the anger of kind of stuff the slipknot yeah the anger of you're you're telling me this is what it should have been like and now i'm finding out that it's not so yeah. i'm what have you been doing yeah why, why did you tell me this was yeah. yeah that's interesting and in parallel you also get the emo scene which is you know i think there's lots of crossovers but there's some uniquenesses and one of the key things in the emo scene is well life sucks it's really hard uh but there's nothing i can do about that and because of that i'm just going to turn inward Wow. And so it just, I'm just going to sit here in my corner and be sad. So I'll <laughs> dress in black, I'll have black makeup, I'll, you know, be depressed um, and, and I'll, I'll mourn uh, and walk around like the, the world's ending and it's really terrible. Um, but you also pay me attention. Yeah, pay attention to me. And help find me to out do that. there's something wrong with me. There's something that it's not right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I think a lot of that emo scene uh, is just na- like becomes navel-gazing. Uh, but again, they don't know what to do. And yeah. so, um, you know, Slipknot and what was the other one you mentioned? Um, Limp Biscuit. Limp Biscuit. Corn. Corn. Uh, yeah, basically to tell you out, just destroy the world because the world sucks. Um, and Emo tells you to just look mm-hmm. inside and be sad because the world sucks. Um, before that, I, th- I think the, the punk movement um, has a little bit more of I, th- I think there's something a little bit more optimistic about punk. It's like, let's, let's break things, but because there's probably something on the other side that's better. So they're raging against the system with, with something po- a little bit more positive, mm. I think. Um, but by the time you get to Limp Bizkit, 
and My Chemical Romance, it's kind of like there's there's nothing positive on the other side. It's, it's all just, over. It's all over. Just be sad or just destroy things. Mm. And you get Woodstock 99 where you just burn the place to the ground um, because what else is there to do? Mm. You just need something cathartic. I need to feel something. Um, I need to feel hard, hardship. Yeah. Most of what you're talking about before. Yeah. Because even I know even on one of the Woodstock 99 docos that I watched, they were saying that they related it to Woodstock 94, which is when they had a lot of the grunge. I know grunge was a little bit earlier than that, but it had a lot of the grunge bands in it. And mm. even yeah, they were saying that even yeah. people like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and the bands of that time uh, still had, there was more of a, uh, there was still more of a hope of like, there's there's better things on the other side, kind of what you were saying, but also more a, a more of a, a social perspective around it. I mean, my favourite band at that time is Rage Against the Machine, right? Because they were the first. I reckon they're probably the first band that really spoke to me. Okay, but then they were talking about so many different political things that I had yeah. no idea about. Yeah, um, that it was. That I was taken in by it because I think maybe I was also looking for something that would be intellectually stimulating. Stimulating, and I'm like, oh, what's all these? They're talking about Noam Chomsky and the Democratic Party and AM radio hosts and <laughs> what are these guys talking about? Like, this mm. is they're actually engaged in issues that matter, or maybe will matter when I'm a bit older, I suppose. Yeah. So there's a, there's that element of that, but then uh, as you're saying, it sounds like yeah, if, by the time you get to Woodstock '99, it's it's all over, but it's in the ground, which is, you know, it's not, I mean, life still goes on, but yeah, it's not, it's not really, ple- not really that pleasant when you look back on it. And I, I, I wonder if that time, I, and that's why I'm only reflecting on it now, like it's 20 odd years ago. And now I'm thinking, well, oh, these are all the issues that I was not, I mean, it's not that uh, prescriptive. Uh, or explicit, but it's like, oh, that's all the things that I was feeling at the time but didn't know how to, and that's the mm. point of the music. Going back to the the idea of what could a Christian scene do or what could a Christian scene impact it, impact the world? We've been talking in the last couple of weeks about costly discipleship. You know, the, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks yep. about that a lot. Yep. But also last week we talked about how copying culture probably isn't enough. Um, and you were talking about sacrifice, and I thought it was really cool. I, just in my mind, you're saying that that adoption curve it requires less sacrifice to adopt it later on. So then I'm thinking, less sacrifice. It's it doesn't require as much sacrifice to copy culture, even as Christians. But to create the Christian cultural goods that um, Stu has introduced that term to us via the work of Andy Crouch. He's saying that it is costly and it does cost more. Like it it requires more sacrifice to be able to do that. What do you think about that? Because, I mean, it's a lot of, it touches on a lot of things that we've been talking about, looking for things that are harder, looking for hardship to actually create things of value. That makes me think of the cultural goods. But also... Yeah, sacrificing yourself actually brings us together for a reason that, you know, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate cost. And that's where I'm, I believe that Bonhoeffer gets a lot of his work for, obviously. is like, what are we going to give up in order to further the gospel 
for that case. So I'm trying to draw the thread between that kind of music scene idea as a Christian scene idea and us being costly costly disciples to one another and to be able to impact the world in that way. Do you think that is that something you, that resonates with you? Yeah, I think the the thing about copying culture I mean part of, like what's the motivation? Why mm. why are you trying to copy culture? Uh, and it might be you're trying to be um, relevant in helpful ways. You're trying to, like I said before, like, you know, we might be trying to resonate with where culture is at, and yeah. so therefore contextualize the contextualizing. Yeah, so contextualizing would be a, a helpful way of doing that. Uh, but sometimes it's because we want cultural validation, and so I'll copy the ways of the world in order to uh, get validation from the world like it's okay to be a christian yeah or maybe like you know if, i'm a christian i can still fit in yeah like if you know uh yeah you know, taylor swift is you know the most popular artist if i can just be the next christian taylor swift then i can have really influence as well and uh and that's why often christians are about 10 years behind culture when you keep trying to chase culture you you end up doing the forms that you see uh not seeing the hard work that taylor swift has put in for the last however many years she's oh, been doing 20 years or something. Be 20 years or something, yeah. something like that. Uh, she's been an artist for. And you're just trying to copy this particular moment, which means actually you're 20 years behind her game um, <laughs> and you'll probably be about 10 years late producing anything of the near quality that she's got now. And she'll have moved on. I mean, this is the whole eras to her, right? Like she's reinvented herself constantly every five years or whatever. And so there's different versions of Taylor uh, that different people who have got into the journey at different points Resonate some, with. some would argue just a different boyfriend, but yeah. Well, <laughs> that's a cynical take. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a cynical man. Yeah. I mean, I've got a really good friend who um, really liked her first, her early country albums. Um, and by the time she starts getting massive radio play, um, was kind of like, oh, I was kind of losing interest because it's not my style. Interesting. Um, and then there's, you know, there's plenty of the younger generation, like my daughter's generation, who are, you know, getting into it because she's popular now and then discovering this old stuff and going, oh, it's a little bit quaint, isn't it? You know, <laughs> stuff. Whereas my friend, who's almost my age, is like, was the opposite, you know, um, been listening to Taylor well before she was popular um, and, and sort of lost interest more as she's become more and more pop or mainstream or changed her styles in different ways. But that's the whole thing about the Eras Tour is you, wherever you are, you want to come because she's going to play stuff from the era that you like and enjoy herself in. Um, I've well and truly lost track of what the question was, but uh, just riffing off, yeah. How do we create create culture? The yeah, the the I, the hardship. I think hardship is a key part. Like maybe not hardship. Maybe that's a negative way of saying it. Um, God created us to work. Mm. So even in Genesis one and two, before you get the fall. You still get Adam having to toil the ground. You still get him having to uh, work in the garden and, and be creative and to um, procreate in terms of family but also procreate in terms of cultural goods and um, you know, farming and you know, all these kinds of things. And uh, presumably if Adam and Eve hadn't been the first ones to fall, you could have had generations after generations who had to work uh, and put in effort in order to achieve a particular good, whether it's growing, you know, carrots or whether it's producing music or, you know, staging drama shows for the community, whatever it is. <laughs> and so, you know, it's 
work, and that's why I kind of want to avoid the word hardship because it's not a negative necessarily to put in effort to achieve a greater good. It's part of how God's designed us yeah. to be. And so I think, again, coming back to that, part of copying culture is uh, I, I can copy what someone else has done. I don't have to put in a lot of that um, effort, that initial effort myself. Whereas creating something that's genuinely Christian and positive might create more effort. Um, it's also going to be harder because particularly in a post-Christian world, we're not going to get resonances with the broader community. We're not going to, people aren't going to go, uh, you know, going to church, hearing Christian things, listening to Christian music, reading Christian books is not a normative thing for our culture. And so you, it might be that we uh, don't you know, make a lot of money by creating cultural goods, Christian cultural goods. We might not make a living out of creating cultural goods. There's even a movement at the moment where people are talking about it might be unviable for ministers to expect to be paid full-time for their churches and so to be bivocational. Um, I think there's one book coming out recently, I haven't read it, but I think the, the future is bivocational or something like that. Um, and the whole argument is this idea that even pastors are not going to necessarily be able to afford from their congregations to pay their rent, buy food for them or their families. Uh, and so it might be that you pass the church part-time and you stock shelves at Kmart, mm. the other half, or you keep up your freelance art or you keep, you know, whatever it is. You know, you've, you've got other things that you're doing um, in the wider world because there's just not enough cultural cachet um, and therefore people in your building to pay you to only pastor and not do anything else. Um, so that's going to be some of the sacrifices that it might not be able to create a living off these things um, but perhaps it might be that like some of these other grassroots movements that you start to um, because of the hardship and because of the sacrifice and because of those who buy into it early the early adopters uh, who also have to sacrifice in order to be in that community to then uh, that creates an energy around it which people get excited by people mm. um, and that then grows so is it possible? Yeah, I think it is. I think the whole history of grassroots movements is that it is possible to grow from very small into something big. Uh, but that's not promised to us that it will happen. Uh, and the marker of success is not the size to which our cultural good grows. It's the marker of success is faithfulness. Mm. Um, and so if, if that's the case, then it really doesn't matter if my cultural good that I've created is, you know, large by, you know, number metric, publication metric, Spotify playlist metric, you know, podcast metric, you know, uh, the number of listeners per episode or, you know, those... YouTube subscribers. YouTube subscribers. Click subscribe. subscribe. <laughs> um, if, if they're not the metrics but it's faithfulness, uh, then, you know, that's what... You know, at the end of time, when Jesus comes back, he's going to say, good and faithful servant. Um, he's, that's what he's looking for. Um, and it may be because of, you know, other factors that that actually grows into a substantial movement and the cultural good becomes something that's more pervasive, perhaps, um, or maybe not. But that's not what's promised to us. What's promised to us is eternal life in new creation with Jesus because of our faithfulness. Um, 
And I think that that is also why, uh, for, and I haven't read Andrew Crouch, but just listening to Stu talk about him, I think that's why it's the creation of positive Christian cultural goods that aren't just copying or conflict or um, criticising culture, but is actually just trying to build something positive. I think that's why that is is good to pursue and why it's a much better strategy than any of the others yeah. uh, because you're actually being faithful to a good and positive generative work of God uh, rather than just criticising. It's not hard to criticise. There's plenty of YouTubers who just sit there and criticise others and you just go, yeah, that's, I mean, that's fine, man, but tell me something positive. Reaction video. Reaction videos, yeah, yeah. It's Very like, reactive, not proactive. That's right, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, watch so-and-so react to this video or this cultural moment or... You said what? Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> and, like, yeah, they're easy to make and they're marketable and... But all that's doing is criticising culture. It's not creating a positive cultural good. Um, and so I think that's what we should be striving for. Yeah. I was just thinking while you were saying that about how um, Stuart has reiterated a couple of times on the podcast about how when Soul Revival was just starting, one of the things that they realised was they weren't giving their best night to God. Mm. And it was when they felt that... a, a a big driver behind the growth of Soul Revival was giving up their best night, which is, you know, Saturday night was considered, that's when the night everyone went out. But that's when they would meet, like hang out as friends and be around the word of God. And that's what I'm thinking about now, because for me, and I'm, this is only from my point of view, is that and obviously I've only ever been part of Soul Revival ministry, really. Um, whether it was youth ministry or at Soul Revival Church. And Saturday night, which is when I go to church, is very much the centrepiece of my week. Like that's a lot of the time I'm looking forward to that. Mm. I want to I want to go to church. I want to be there. And I think my children are the same. They, they're like, church is what we do every Saturday night and we do that. And I think that might be different for a lot of people. And I think a lot of that speaks to, you know, that, that costly decision or that doing those things that are you know, require work or service or those things that we're talking about. So I know that someone asked you relatively recently about their thinking about starting a Saturday night. What's your thinking around that? And I mean, you go to church on Sunday mm. most of the time. Um, so it's not so much the day that you do it. It's what is it representing? Because I see it as a, as a, a kind of almost like, a home base that I return to every single week where I go to learn more about the word of God, be in fellowship with the same people that are, that are Christians that have listened to the word of God and, you know, being on discipleship together. Yeah. And then so that we can go out for the rest of the week and be the same, not, yeah. I mean, I think sometimes we talk about copying culture. I feel like it, sometimes Christians are copying culture and going to sun, going to church on Sunday for an hour a week rather than allowing the time at church to be a really formative and helpful time so that they can go out and bring glory to God for the rest of the week and then return back to that kind of home base yeah. idea. I was just interested what you thought about that and also what were your kind of recommendations for someone asking about starting on a service on Saturday night? Yeah, so a mate of mine just um, rang me up and said, oh, this is what we're, we're thinking about. We're just tossing ideas around. It's not a set thing, but... You know, I know you guys do it and I know it's really important to you. Uh, and so what, why is, why is that, you know, just talk me through the strategy. 
And so we did. We just talked through the strategy and that counterculturally choosing the most important social night of the week and saying, I'm going to give that to God and to his people um, is a hardship. And like we've been talking about, that hardship actually creates a passion and an excitement that uh, generates interest and starts to build. So it's you get a strong commitment from the people who choose to opt into that option. Yep. Uh, and it also generates interest from the outside because people go, yeah, you, you always do that church thing on Saturday night and you never come out to the pub with us. Why is that? Oh, because because <laughs> where else would I be? Of course I'd be at church. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. I like you and I enjoy your friendship and if we can go out any other night of the week or if we want to go out for lunch on a Sunday or even Sunday night, let's go out to the pub. But Saturday night, it's, this is the most exciting thing. I like, genuinely... Yeah. I can't think of anything better to do with my Saturday night than to be at church with God and his people. Well, even when I go on holidays and I miss church because I'm on holidays, I'm yeah. like, I miss church. Yeah, I that's want, right. I'd, like if I miss it for one or two weeks, I'm like, I need to get back to church. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, it doesn't have to be a Saturday night. Um, but interestingly for us, the reason we're on Sunday morning was actually a hardship. <laughs> yeah. Um, and because, uh, I mean, Saturday night was the only service we had for a long time. So... All of our family, like all of the energy and gravity was on Saturday night. And so, of course, we wanted to be on Saturday. And Saturday night was the highlight of our week. Um, and there's a nice benefit um, of, you know, in terms of we've, we've spent six hours in community with God's people around his word, nourishing on actual food, spiritual food, you know, fellowship with each other on Saturday night. And you get all of Sunday free. That's pretty cool. Like that's, <laughs> yeah, for someone who's been in ministry for their, you know, since they were a teenager – not doing anything on Sunday was really weird, but really refreshing. <laughs> okay, Just right. go, oh, wow. Like to have Sunday free was huge for us. Um, but one of two things kind of coincided at the same time. One was our kids were getting at an age where uh, they were struggling to stay up late. Yeah. So we were feeling like we needed to head home soon after the service. Yeah smash down a little bit of dinner but then go um and we were feeling a pain there because we're like we we want to hang out late and if we were child free we could hang out late and, and did when before we had kids you know we were one of the last ones to turn the lights off on yeah you know, guy me saw revival yep. and you know uh and so but as our kids kind of got to an age where actually no their sleep was a practical need that needed to be you know looked after um so that was something that we were wrestling with was just like, oh, we, our value as Soul Revivalists was to, you know, spend a long time in community with each other. And we were finding that increasingly difficult to do. Uh, and then at the same time, we as a church team were talking about um, planning a Sunday morning gathering. Uh, and so it was actually, uh, it, was, it was a hardship. It was in that kind of pain point of actually going, well, what if we are part of that? launch team what if we help plan the sunday morning service and that meant we were removing ourselves from the key relationships that we had the key family that we had the key drivers and excitement of that and just with a small handful of those so we had people like the foxes and uh, the redmonds and i think the sabs were there at the time in the early days um uh, i'm sure there were others there, so there was a there was probably about a dozen 20 maybe tops of us who 
you know, butted out of Saturday night to plant Sunday morning in the hope that we could reproduce some of those soil revival values on a Sunday morning. So how are we going to do food? How are we going to spend a long time together? How are we going to um, make sure the community as well as formal gathering time are really important to us and key to us? So, yeah, we were experimenting with that. What does that look like? And so that's now where we've been for, I don't know, six years, however long Sunday morning mm. gathering has been around for probably longer. I always lose track of time. Um, and now uh, and, and, and now we have those relationships. We have, you know, a whole new set of relationships of people who have come and joined the church on Sunday mornings who were not part of that Saturday church expression, who we do have deep fellowship, deep friendship, we love spending time together. You know, our best Sundays are the Sundays we don't have to rush off to something else, but are actually able to stay longer. And around, you know, 12, 31 o'clock, we're going, oh, I probably should either go home or at least grab lunch for all of us. <laughs> you know, it's like they're really joyful moments now because we are expressing those sorrow revival values um, on a different time. Uh, but again, it's a commitment and it's hard and it's, um, it does take uh, effort and it does take say no to things and um, to to make sure that that happens. Um, so it's interesting that we, uh, we we're still trying to express those sort of our values, even though we kind of look like it's a normal church service. Like well, it's a regular time. For it's a regular time. Churches, yeah. yeah, but we're trying to still express the uniquenesses of the strategy, yeah. um, which is really interesting. Um, and but yeah, I think that the the key point that you're driving towards is this idea that yes the hardship um creates value and the value creates excitement yeah um and the excitement is what starts to build that movement um that grassroots movement um, because people are intrigued by that people do are interested and go why are you committing so much time on such an inconvenient space for this well it's because it's totally worth it mm. um and it's it's genuinely exciting mm. um to do this together and on that idea of cultural goods, it's almost like to spend that long at church is that that count. It's a counter-cultural good. Almost, I mean, that's just a matter of semantics. Well, it's counterculture it? to it's the world, yeah, and even to a lot of church cultures. But we've created it. We've created the cultural good. And those mm. who, there's many people who have bought into it hook, line and sinker, who are just like, yeah, well, I'm, I'm all in. And there's lots of other people who are kind of on the periphery going, I really like this. I'm not sure why. I don't know if I can articulate it, but I really like the vibe here. There's something really special about this. Um, and so that's really attractive, both for those who are not Christians, who are finding that intriguing, yep. and also for Christians who have had experience at other churches who come and go, there's something different about this. Your gospel's not different. Your preaching's not different. The songs are pretty much the same as churches I've been in. Your prayers are pretty much the same. Your Bible studies are pretty much the same. But there's something about this. And what is it? Well, it's it's this cultural good that we're trying to create around community and the expression of community. And I think week away would be another thing. Week yep. away is a cultural good. Uh, and most people I talk to, uh, I said this before, like go a week away, a week I was like, don't you mean a weekend? <laughs> um, no, no, I don't mean a weekend. I mean a week. Well, it's five days, five and a half days that we spend with each other intentionally creating culture. Um, and that is really hard. Like, and there's that, that sacrifice. It take, requires sacrifice to say, I'm going to take a week of my annual leave um, to go on a church week away. 
um, that I would take, you know, uh, a significant amount of money. Um, it's the most money that my family spends on any trip at any point in the year. Yep, it's one week away. Yep. We don't go anywhere else. We don't have other holidays. That that is our holiday because that's what we can afford. Mm. But of course, we choose that because we love it. Yep. Um, and if the choice was between that and a week in Fiji, then we'd choose week away every time. Like absolutely, because there's a cultural good, there's a passion and excitement mm. and joy around that. Um, that yeah is is different too, but in other words, incomparable to you know just a family holiday somewhere. Mm. And I think there's the link between you know how I. We started this episode almost, or talking about the cultural artifacts at the very least, was me resonating with what Limbisca was saying, but still not knowing is a cool way that those Christian cultural goods would work, would help people, whether Christian or non-Christian, people resonate Mm. with that and go, why do I... Want to want to want to be part of this more? Why do I want to spend more time in this current situation than I'm in, rather than if church is seen as just copying culture? It's like well, it's exactly the same, but like Jesus just sprinkled on top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like no, this is, Jesus is transformative. So let's transform our lives. So the action is in the church. The yeah, it's the centerpiece of our week, which is again very countercultural. When it's appealing, maybe not appealing is the right word, but it's intriguing to people. Why? Why would you? Be, why would you bother doing this? Why would you bother going a week away? Mm. So you've had other Christians ask you that, for example. Uh, I, I think most people, when I talk to them, they kind of go, "Oh, wow, that sounds amazing," but it would never happen in my context. That's what so I'm saying. It's, it's the thought right. that oh, that's. I don't know if anyone, I don't think anyone has really said, why would you do that? Not from a Christian point of view, but just the, that would never happen here. Like there's no, most churches struggle to get their crew to a day away, which is not really a day away. It's a day in where they just, let's just do church all day. Mm. And that's kind of a novel thing that they they push towards because they've given up on the idea of a weekend, um, but they're still trying to have some sort of, again, that kind of mountaintop experience because it's just like with the square one kind of stuff for kids. Yeah, you know, um, having church house parties, which is you know a weekend away, that's the thing that goes back generations. Mm-hmm. You know, well into my parents and grandparents' time was churches going on house parties. You know, having a weekend away, um, and there's a lot of feeling by a lot of churches that uh, that era is gone. Like you just you can't replicate that, or they try and people don't. People are too busy; they don't want to buy in. Well, the cost is too high. The cost is too high. Both. Uh, time cost <laughs> and <laughs> relational costs, money costs. Yeah, it it is, and it is it like genuinely is costly in all of those things. And you get back to this whole idea of costly discipleship. Of well, yeah, I mean, positive Christian culture is going to be costly at some level. Now, doesn't say you, you you must. You know, the only expression is to make people broke by tipping <laughs> no, them on a weekend no. away. But it, it just the thought, oh, I won't do this because it's costly, is a very late twentieth century early 21st century idea of um, if something's costly, it's not worth doing. And yeah. I think part of what Bonhoeffer challenges us with, um, that obviously Jesus challenges with, is that, no, 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 like cost is not inherently bad. In fact, cost can be genuinely good. Um, and to put in a cost and to make things, not, not intentionally make things hard, but to 
to put effort in uh, is you end up on the other side with something more positive and better uh, when you've actually counted the cost, mm. you've considered the cost and you go for it anyway. Yeah, I, I think one of, maybe to wrap up the episode is that anything of value comes at a price. Yeah. That's a saying that I've heard before. Yeah. And I think ex- that's exactly what you're talking about. And I think yeah. what Bonhoeffer is talking about, what Jesus did. Yeah. I mean, this is Jesus' little parables about the, the treasure in the field, right? And the, and the, mm. the pearl of great price. Um, and the pearl of great price, you know, the, the uh, pearl merchant is looking around and he finds the most perfect, the most beautiful pearl. Um, and it says, in his joy, he went out and sold everything in order to buy the pearl. And we think, often think about sacrifices. Oh, my goodness, I'm going to have to give up all this stuff. It's so hard and it's begrudging <laughs> and like blah, blah, And that's not what that, how that parable plays out. It's in his joy. Like he he gives joyfully gives up everything else mm. in order to achieve the pearl, which in, is the kingdom of God in the parable. Um, and what we're doing when we create positive cultural moments is uh, creating it a joy to buy into those. And, and you know, obviously they're much less than the kingdom of God, but they, they can be symbolic of that, or they can be little mirrors of that. You know, I, you know, in the 90s, I thought it was a great joy to not know what the latest Green Day album was because I knew what the latest OC Supertones album was. <laughs> right. that, was a, that was a joy for me. I didn't care what most of the people in my class were listening to. Uh, I had no idea who the bands that they were listening to. I mean, I kind of did because they were on Triple M. But really, I was in my – it was a great joy to have this little underground pocket of Christian punk rock hardcore ska bands um, who just celebrated being Jesus, like being friends with Jesus. Uh, and I didn't think I was hard done by, by not knowing the latest, you know, top 20 or the latest hot band from Triple J. Like you could go, oh, I suppose I'm just going to put up with the Christian music because, <laughs> you know, I have to listen to Christian music, but I really wish I was listening to Nirvana. It's like, no, I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't care what Blink-182 were doing um, because I had bands that I was choosing not to purchase those albums by purchasing these albums. Um, and these albums were shaping me as a disciple of Jesus. You know, it's like, I, I think it's a great joy to not be mm. saving up for a Fiji holiday because every year we commit to going a week away. It's a massive joy. Love it. Um, and I think that's, mm. but if, if we try and create these cultural goods, if we just suddenly say to our church, all right, we're going to a week away and everyone's going to love it, um, yes. you're going to have a lot of grumbling and a lot of complaining and because it, there's a heart attitude there. And this is one of the conversations I had with my friend over the phone about Saturday nights is um, Saturday nights might work, but it's not about the structure of a Saturday night. That's just a practice. Um, and there's lots of different practices that you can have. Mm. The key is the heart change. If you've got a group of people for whom they can think of no better thing to do with their whatever time you pick than to come together as God's people, to meet around his word and to spend time, genuine long periods of time with each other. Uh, if, if you've got that, it doesn't matter what time you meet. You could say 3 a.m. on a Tuesday morning, <laughs> you know, and if you had that heart of people, that'd be all for it. And this is what you find in the underground church in China, right? 
you know, they're, they're persecuted minorities. They can only meet at really obscure times and really hard to get to places. Uh, and it's, it's a joy for them to go and meet at those times. Mm. Now, we don't have persecution. We've just got iPhones. We've just got full calendars. We've just got, you know, uh, Netflix series. Oh, I've got to binge the next 20 episodes of such and such. You know, that's what's stopping us. And if you can't break through people's uh, concept of that, um, you know, if, if Jesus doesn't help shape their heart towards seeing uh, gathering together as his people as a joy far better than anything you could possibly give up, um, then it doesn't really matter what time. You could say 9am on a Sunday morning. You could say 6pm on a Sunday night. You could say mm. 5 o'clock on a Saturday night. Um, what you need is people who love Jesus and love his people enough to sacrifice their everything else to be. And when you've got those early adopters, you know, that's what's going to start the grassroots movement. Or maybe not. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's, what I'm hearing is like the cost that comes... Willing to accept the cost that comes from the genuine joy that the gospel brings. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yep. Well, I think that's a good way to finish. Thank good. You, thank you very much, Tim. Pleasure, Joe. It was fun. It was really fun. I really enjoyed it. It's cool talking about all that music stuff. Yeah. It's fun. Thank you, everyone listening or watching as well. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, you can chuck them on our YouTube channel or you can send me an email at joel at chocolatesover.com.au and I will definitely reply. And we'll bring the question on the podcast as well. So Excellent. Look again, forward to it. Yes, look forward to it. Thank you for everyone listening. Thank you again to Tim. And as always, we finish with one way. One way. One way. One way.